0: Hi, this is Justin Vaughn. I'm here with Corey Cook, and you're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. We are back with the second edition of our new public affairs radio program. Unfortunately, our co-host, Jen Schneider, is not able to make it. She is uh, down with, uh, hopefully not the flu this week, like everybody else seems to be. It seems to be pretty rough this (laughs) this winter. Uh, So we figured... Since Jen's not here to make us think better of it, we thought we'd do our second show about taxes. Uh, everybody likes to hear about taxes. I'm sure you're all turning the volume up right now. Um, we recently did a survey. We talked a little bit about that survey last week. And in it, we learned some really interesting things about taxes.
1: So one of the things that we, we found was that um, you know, interest in taxes as a policy issue increased um pretty pretty dramatically this time around and obviously we can talk some of the reasons why that is. I think we found that there uh, we have asked a question we do fairly regularly about sort of what the tax service sort of mix ought to be in Idaho. And you know, this time we found roughly 50% saying I prefer more taxes and, and more services, and 50% saying less taxes, less services, which again I think is, is an interesting finding. I'm hoping you'll, Justin, you'll talk a little bit more about. And the third thing is we did a, a number of tests around sort of specific types of tax reform and looked at in particular this trade-off between the grocery tax and the income tax, something we're going to talk about with our guests in a little bit. And so I'm interested in, 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 in your take on those on those three pieces.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years is, is some real stability in uh, how people feel about the state, how people feel about the state's budget, how people feel about uh, taxes. Generally, people are okay with the size of the budget. They're generally okay with the size of the tax burden. If you ask them if they like tax cuts, they'd be happy to take them, but there's not strong demand for it. Uh, and there's a real split um, between, as you mentioned, uh, how people feel about if they would rather have smaller government, meaning less money going in, or if they want services that uh, provided by the government that they would then have to pay for. It's, it's pretty evenly distributed in Idaho between those who would want, you know, want to pay more and, and get more versus those who want uh, to pay less and get less. That's always interesting to me, first of all, because it's so evenly distributed. Other places are not. But also because the party uh, breakdown in Idaho is not evenly distributed. There's a lot more Republicans than our Democrats. There's a lot more conservatives than our liberals. And yet that that ideological or partisan distribution is not reflected in this, in this, um, uh, in, in, in this consistent kind of feeling about taxes and services that we've seen uh, for a while. Um, other states, uh, this is not the case.
1: Right. Absolutely. So if you look at at the public opinion across the country, you see either dramatically one direction or the other, which suggests that probably the state legislature and the governor have maybe put the state in a different direction when the public is. This to me, again, one of my my reads on this, you know, certainly not great news for legislators. Right. So no matter what you do, half the public will be unhappy with your choices. But it does suggest, again, it, it conforms nicely, I think, with some of the other findings that people think we're generally in the right direction in the state of Idaho.
0: Right. Yeah. If you're in a state that's like Kansas that is unable to provide the resources that citizens demand that has very low taxes you're going to see people say i'd i'd rather pay more and, and get more you're gonna in a highly taxed place or at least place that feels like it's highly taxed um illinois a few years ago uh i'd rather pay less and get less uh idaho is in the sweet spot it seems and that is kind of consistent with all these other indicators that we, that we see.
1: So after the break, we're going to talk with Alex LeBeau. Alex is, in full disclosure, a Ph.D. candidate at, at Boise State. Um, he's getting his Ph.D. In, in public policy administration. He's also the uh, president of the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry and obviously knows a lot about tax policy and is an advocate around tax policy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's 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 a great expert here in in the state on this. Um, you know, certainly uh, has a position, a perspective, uh, a preferred outcome um, for uh, how the the tax issue might be resolved this spring. And that's something that we'll um, we'll routinely do with the show is we'll bring on people. Uh, ask them to to make their case and 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 uh you the listener can can determine if they're persuasive if you uh, think they're on the money or if they're um if, or if, if you support another uh perspective to give you a little bit of an idea um of what the kind of uh scenario we're talking about and we'll talk a little bit more about this uh later to um to this afternoon the governor. Recently um, uh, had his uh, tax initiative introduced in the legislature. It's a pretty massive um, uh, uh, reduction, almost a half a percent lowering um, personal and corporate income tax rates across the board. Um, that would lead to, you know, uh, almost $160 million in tax relief. Um, and it, But it would also create... a a new tax credit dealing with um, uh, children, right? So that if you have children, you get a certain amount of money uh, credit per child. And so really big development. It'll be interesting to see how how, uh, it proceeds through the legislative process. We'll talk more about that um, in the next segment as well. And so Uh, So stick with us here for a moment and uh, we'll be back. We're going to do some uh, underwriting and then we'll return we'll talk more taxes and uh, be joined by Alex Lebeau of the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry.
2: We're
0: back on The Big Tent. I'm here with Dean Corey Cook, of the School of Public Service. This is Justin Vaughn. Uh, I'm here on Radio Boise. We've been talking about taxes this morning, and we have a, a very uh, well-informed guest here to talk a little bit more with us. Alex LeBeau is the president of the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry. Uh, he's uh, knows all sorts of things that he's going to share with us about ta- how tax policy is formed, um, the different ta- tax relief uh, initiatives being discussed this spring, and why uh, he and his organization think one of those approaches is better uh, for Idaho families than another. Uh, Alex, welcome to The Big Tent.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Good Uh, to see you guys. Yeah, good to
0: see you. So... The governor, governor's uh, tax cut bill was recently introduced in, into the legislature. It, it, it was printed and uh, is moving forward uh, through the legislative process. Um, the legislative process in Idaho is a lot like it is in other state legislatures, but each one's a little bit unique. Could you tell us a little bit about how that process works now that once the governor's kind of initiative on taxes or anything else is, is brought to a committee?
2: Yeah, usually uh, what happens in virtually every process for every piece of legislation, including this one, is, is it's, it's a multi-stage process that starts out with simply printing the legislation. And the committees have the discretion as to, one, whether or not they're even going to hear it, and two, whether or not they're going to print it. <clears throat> they can make a choice on either. Uh, if they choose to hear it and then they choose to print it, then it becomes public, so the public then can review the legislation, and they usually have a period of time in which to consider that, and they'll bring the legislation back with a formal bill number that gets a hearing. Uh, you hear from both sides. They make a determination as to what they want to do with it. They can then, you know, keep it in committee or, or move it on. If they move it to the full floor for consideration, then usually a member of that committee is selected to uh, move that to the floor, in this case, uh, Representative Mike Moyle. Um, <clears throat> it's also co-sponsored by the speaker and, and leadership on the Senate side. And then we go over to the Senate. It doesn't have to be reprinted at that point because it's already a public piece of legislation, but the committee process is the same. Assuming that it survives all of that, uh, with unscathed, uh, without being amended and then reconsidered and, and any number of different things that can happen along the way, uh, then it simply goes to the governor's desk for his consideration and final vote.
0: So there's a lot of points in which a a bill can meet a an early and untimely death. untimely <laughs> death. Yeah. As
2: as with anything, legislative making is hard. There's meant to be friction in the system, and and that's part of. Uh having an appropriate democracy like what we have.
0: So I know in a given year, a few hundred, few, am I right that a few hundred bills will make it all the way through? Um,
2: yeah, that's kind of a misnomer. Many of those are appropriation bills. So okay. um, there's usually not a lot of controversy associated with those. I mean, maybe in the public education budget, maybe in higher ed or a few things, there might be some some issues there. But generally, uh, I would say that almost half of those are, are, are appropriations bills. And then there's uh, several others throughout a legislative session, there could be as many as seven, 800,000 pieces of legislation that can be printed in any number of different ways. Um, that doesn't even include all the RSs. That's a, a name for the ones that don't actually even uh, get to the committee process. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, it's, a, it's a daunting task to get from point A to point B to have uh, uh, a bill make it through process and make it through Quickly, um, like the unemployment insurance uh, legislation just did, uh, and and I, that that's probably a record for for a tax mm-hmm. piece of legislation to move through uh, through the legislature. But um, one of this magnitude uh, that's making it through the process, um, the governor certainly has done his homework in in terms of working with the legislature to ensure that this happens.
0: So, given the difficulties with getting legislation through the process, some pieces of legislation take multiple years before they're able to to survive it. Uh, Last year, there was a tax bill that got kind of caught up in kind of of end-of-session controversy, and um, where some some legislators were advocating an income tax reduction, some legislators were advocating changes to the grocery taxes uh, that's levied in Idaho, Um, and it ended up, nothing really ended up going forward, which set the stage for... Um, a big choice this session being, if we're going to have tax relief, and specifically if there's going to be an elimination of the grocery tax, as so some people in the, in the chamber want, or an um, or reducing the income tax in the state. Income tax is pretty simple to understand. I think maybe maybe not on April 15th, but the idea of income tax is simple. Grocery tax in Idaho is a little funky. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the grocery tax and the and the um, well, how, how kind of the different pieces of the grocery taxation policy work in Idaho?
2: Sure. Uh, th- there are some things that I think need to be noted that will uh, uh, I think people need to understand in the whole grocery tax context. One, you go and you pay your, you pay your taxes on the groceries you get, whatever uh, if they're, they're durable products or uh, uh, e- perishables. Either, either one, you're going to pay a, a, a sales tax on. In some locales you'll pay more. Uh, and others because of a local option tax or a resort cities tax. But for the vast majority throughout the state of Idaho, you pay a 6% on whatever it is that you have in your shopping cart at any particular time. Uh, throughout the year, you pay that tax. And then at the time that you come around to pay your income tax, the state of Idaho also provides a grocery tax credit uh, for every single person in the household. So 120 bucks, 150 if, if you're beyond a certain age. But anyway, everybody gets the the credit themselves for however many people you have in the household and that gets then credited back to you against your idaho income tax and that's a dollar for dollar credit so it's a substantial uh redistribution I would say at that. The other element associated with this that a lot of people don't realize is those that are on uh, low-income assistance, uh, SNAP benefits, essentially food stamps is, is, is how they've been characterized. Uh, they do not pay taxes. Uh, they do not pay sales tax on on the items that they purchase, and usually those are the working poor or, or very low-income families that need some help uh, moving along. That's, in essence, without getting into the details of what retailers have to go through in order to comply with the tax, um, which is a whole other debate. Um, That's basically how it works.
0: Okay. So you're listening to The Big Tent. I'm Justin Vaughn. I'm here with uh, Corey Cook. And our guest today, Alex LeBeau from the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry. Uh, So the grocery tax we know from the survey work that we've done, uh, eliminating it is more popular than reducing the income tax. Mm -hmm. Um, We... Also know that the grocery tax has some some proponents, some advocates in the legislature saying that that's what we should get rid of, along with the uh, the, um, the 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 rebate. Uh, but others, such as your organization, argue that reducing income tax is actually the better thing to do for uh, for Idaho and for and that it'll have a bigger impact on families in Idaho. Can you tell us a little bit more about your argument and? Why, why, what kind of the evidence you have that supports that?
2: Well, if I can take this in two stages. One, I'll talk about just the general philosophy. And then two, I'll talk about the specific piece of legislation that's working its way through the process. The very first uh, thing that most people don't understand and, and that wasn't asked in the survey uh, is if people really understood uh, the benefit itself. So the way that that piece of legislation that was proposed last year would have worked, it would have eliminated the grocery tax credit. So understand that even those that don't pay sales tax receive the grocery tax credit. So those that that receive food stamps get the credit. That would go away. They're still not paying sales tax on on their groceries. Secondarily, there is no clear definition within SNAP benefits as to what groceries are qualify and do not qualify. So there was a big mess associated with what retailers may or may not have to comply with, because that's not something that is currently dealt with by the state tax commission, it's dealt with by health and welfare. And health and welfare is a little loose when it comes to regulating what retailers charge tax on and do not. Ultimately, when you sit down and you do the math for a family of four, in order for them to have a benefit with that piece of legislation, one, they would have to make an income of over $100,000 a year. They'd have to have a family of four, and they'd have to be spending approximately $600 a month or more on groceries that would qualify for this, essentially on food, uh, in a grocery store in order to qualify for any sort of benefit that's really the tipping point. So you've got a pretty high threshold to get to at that point. The way the income tax piece works, uh, it applies to everyone from first dollar all the way up. So our proposal and and largely with the the proposal that's working its way through the process, uh, even those families that are on the, the low end of the income scale that aren't currently paying sales tax, by the way, would continue to receive the grocery tax credit that they would have lost under the other plan they'll have a child credit, uh, and their overall rate throughout the process will go down. So when you talk about something that is a net benefit to all families across the state of Idaho, the income tax is the more appropriate and more well-thought-out process uh, that ultimately results in significant economic growth back to the state of Idaho, providing more opportunities over the long haul. That's a really short version of something Mm -hmm. that's a little more complicated than that, uh, but suffice to say that uh, it, the, the eliminating the grocery tax really isn't all as cracked up to be under uh, all of the specific proposals that we have seen. Okay.
1: What are your expectations in terms of the economic growth? Because obviously that's a big piece of, of what you're anticipating as part of the, the, the income tax changes
2: so let's talk about uh the current proposal that's working its way through now we had a proposal that that we laid out at uh the associated taxpayers of of idaho conference ours was a bit more aggressive than the one that's going through now but we also were not aware of what was happening in washington dc at least having an understanding of, of the ultimate piece of legislation that was passed what Washington, D.C. did in essence is they took away uh, several standard deductions and then and created a new overall overriding deduction that would apply to every taxpayer in the state of Idaho. That actually works out uh, between the corporate and uh, the individual side, which is where most companies pay is on the individual side, and I don't think a lot of people quite understand that. It's under S-Corps and pass-throughs and things like that. Uh, in that particular scenario... The state of Idaho was netting approximately $100 million more in tax from people in Idaho because of the way that the federal deductions uh, work, of course, with our conformity system. The governor has moved forward with a $200 million tax reduction package that incorporates uh, a vast, uh, um, I guess the best way you can put it is he's he's putting the money back into the child deduction through a child credit uh, process, uh, of, of $130 per child for, for the state of Idaho, plus a 0.475 uh, tenths reduction in the, in the income tax across the entire spectrum of brackets. So from first dollar all the way up. Other proposals have only been on the top bracket. So this mm-hmm. one will impact every single family. Uh, from from dollar one, uh, and it reduces the top rate uh, down to six point nine two five. I believe is 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 the number. That's just on the individual side. On the corporate side, also a substantial reduction uh, to six point nine two five. We had called for one that would be around six point four. Uh, and under that scenario, that would have generated about $400 million of new wealth in the state of Idaho for all Idahoans. That's a... That's, uh, uh, new jobs. That's 3,000 new jobs to the state of Idaho. So certainly when you're dealing with income taxes and you're t- particularly dealing with business income taxes, those are dollars that just don't go and sit, and sit in somebody's account. Those are reinvested back into the company through capital and through personnel to, to operate that capital. And so what you end up seeing is large economic growth as a result of smart uh, tax policy, which is uh, you know the, the way that the federal government set theirs up Idaho is giving it straight back into the income tax side in a way that uh, we think is uh, wholly appropriate. Thanks.
0: All right. You've been hearing from Alex LeBeau, president of the Idaho Association for Commerce and Industry. We just learned a lot about how lawmaking in Idaho works, about the, the kind of uh, nitty-gritty of grocery taxes and income taxes and and why uh, the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry argues that uh, – Reducing income tax is the way to go for Idaho families, for grow- economic growth in Idaho, uh, and more. So uh, we'll be back uh, shortly. You're listening to the Big Tent on Radio Boise. Stay tuned. Okay, we're back on the Big tent. i I'm Justin Vaughn. I'm here with Corey Cook. Unfortunately, Jen Schneider was not able to make it with us today, but she will be back with us next week. Uh, I figure we come back to what we ended last time with and talk a little bit about, you know, where we're getting our information, what we've been thinking about and and reading. So, Corey, what's on your nightstand right now?
1: So I've been reading a lot lately about uh, political polarization and in particular about you know, how different groups of people um, really think differently about political information. There's a, a new book that came out uh, that, that Rand Corporation uh, just this uh, produces an e-book called Truth Decay, which is a book about essentially how, um, you know, different partisan groupings in society have very different interpretations of basic facts. And so there, there the argument in the book is that, um, you know, there used to be much more agreement about, you know, Essential facts and how we might interpret those things. That now you know we're consuming very different news sources. Uh, we 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 really interpret bits of information very differently, and it's grounded very much in cognitive psych- psychology, which is you know a field that looks at how we, we process information and make these information shortcuts. And so, increasingly, in a in a deeply polarized environment, uh, those shortcuts mean. You know, I, don't, I actually don't even read information that doesn't conform with my pre-existing views if i happen to come across it, it either polarizes my existing views or frankly um, i don't remember what i read to begin with and that really is contributing to uh, not only the increased polarization we're seeing among the electorate where increasingly, people are saying, not just do I like my own party, but increasingly, I view the other party as a threat to the nation's well-being, which is a fairly remarkable standard to see in American politics. But it's also led to this rise, I think, in political incivility. And so the point of this particular book is that what we're seeing is that because we can't uh, agree on basic facts because we can't have a common language that our political discourse is fractured and it's instead led to this rise of political incivility, which is something I know you've worked quite a lot on recently.
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of people in Boise in, in Idaho have been doing some very interesting things. The state legislature did a civility training um, at, the, at the previous session. A couple of those legislators, um, uh, uh, Melissa Wintrow and um, uh, Senator Chuck Winder. Chuck Winder, yeah. Senator yeah. Winder and Melissa Wintrow went to uh, – became certified as, as trainers. So they – real kind of bipartisan commitment to civility in the State House. The city club did a year of civility. President Custer at Boise State really committed to this idea of civility. And so we did some some um, some really fun c- civility-related uh, programming throughout the, the last academic year, throughout the election, trying to find ways where it feels like sometimes we're being – torn apart to come back together and, and increasingly, and maybe that's partly with the rise of, of the, the phrase fake news and how that's become so much of the, of the mainstream we found, and by we, I mean, everybody involved in this conversation about civility and civic engagement and civil discourses found that the ability to comprehend information and to be kind of, you know, media literate or have high levels of civic literacy is fundamental to a thriving you know democracy and so we're we're continuing to do stuff this year with that um uh the center that i'm the director of the center for idaho history and politics is partnering with the idaho statesman and with idaho public television and doing some events um in in boise and in twin falls over the spring on february 14th there's going to be a screening of a documentary that was produced in chicago um, at uh, the Lincoln Auditorium in the Capitol, and so that evening there'll be an all-day event at Boise State where we um, where we screen that documentary and have some panel discussions. Uh, the, doc- the The documentary is really interesting. Uh, it's called American Creed, and it's, um, it features Condoleezza Rice and David Kennedy. I believe is the name of the um, the scholar. They're both they both teach it at Stanford, and they're you know Democrat or Republican. They taught a kind of an honors class, I think, together. And, um, and so this, and with this group of Stanford students and the help of people around the country, they, they really go and take this deep dive into how do we mend the fraying fabric of the country? Uh, and they talk to everybody from, um, you know, the founder of MoveOn.org to the manager of the Chicago Cubs. And, uh, and so they're going to, uh, it was produced by WTTW Chicago. They're going to, um, do a variety of events with that here in, um, in, in, in idaho thanks to idaho public television and we're fortunate to be able to kind of collaborate with them and and, and use that to bring some energy to con- continue this conversation uh in this book you're reading or some of the other things you've done um as you as you continue to learn more about this are there things that that you've learned that that might help point us in the right direction so
1: one of the things that's really surprising and this is you know out of a, a study that was done uh, not even quite a year ago was a finding that that actually what what matters Quite a bit, and getting people to sort of maybe think more critically about about political information, is this concept of, of you know, science curiosity, that actually, if you if you, and, and this is pretty consistent with some of the things we found in our survey. If you take take folks who. Uh, for example uh, you know find climate change to be a hoax and you give them information that is supportive of, of climate change it turns out their views polarize uh, they they don't necessarily remember it but it actually reaffirms they read that information and it reaffirms and strengthens their their pre-existing views but it turns out that they're, they're folks with with high degrees of science curiosity and that people with with sort of interest in, 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 in learning more about interesting findings, that when they read media reports or, or, or news articles that start with um, a difference of phrase, right, rather than science find you know, scientists find more evidence that yet again confirms that X versus surprising findings from scientists, it turns out that people who are more curious actually... Have their views shaped by the new information? Hmm. Um, people who aren't science curious, it doesn't make any difference. It's still they, their views still polarized. And so, one of the interesting questions is, as we think about media literacy and, and civic literacy, is also not not sort of science literacy, but how do we encourage that, that sort of that curiosity that encourages people to say, "Hey, I'm interested in information that may actually not confirm my existing, you know, existing beliefs." So the confirmation bias that we know is a key. Cognitive shortcut that that many that all of us are uh, are sort of pre-selected to have. Um, how do we how do we get people who are who are curious who actually are seeking out information that is counter to their existing partisan or ideological views?
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I know a lot of the conversation about kind of information literacy and civic literacy is is giving people the skills to go find information. But I think just based on what you just said, it's it's important that when they do find that article, that it's that the rhetoric of it is in a way that is, uh, doesn't shut them down.
1: So one, there's an interesting um, experiment that that asked people, um, I think it was on gun control, but basically said, read a a perspective that's different than your own, and if you read that, we'll put you in a a lottery where you can win $10, or you can read a perspective that's consistent with your own, and you can win $7. So as a rational person, you're reading a paragraph, you think, well, probably most people would select the view that's different than their own so they can actually get a higher benefit, and it turns out um, just under two-thirds of people say, I'd rather just read the thing that confirms my existing viewpoints. So even when you put these different viewpoints in front of people, we're going to select the one that is consistent with our own views unless we've developed this curiosity to say, I really actually am interested in what the other side is saying, particularly when that other side's viewpoint is maybe new or original or surprising. And so again, how do we encourage people to have that sort of curiosity as well as the interest in and, you know, the, the, the ability to comprehend these different pieces of information.
0: That's fascinating. Well, that's our job here, I guess, on the show, right? We're, <laughs> we're right. going to make you uh, political science curious. Right. And uh, hopefully right. uh, you'll keep listening. We'll be back next week. This is Justin Vaughn. I've been with Corey Cook. Uh, on behalf of Jen Schneider, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the big tent again in a week.